such a great, uh, where he says the, the prophets are in the hardware. He goes, hmm, <laughs> yeah, how'd that one turn out? Uh, that was actually from a movie that probably a lot of people didn't see. It was actually, I think, a made-for-TV movie, I think, is when it came out. It was back in 1999. I remember seeing it on TV back in the day. They heavily promoted like on TBS or something called The Pirates of Silicon Valley about the relationship between Gates and Jobs when they were starting with the uh, personal computing industry. And uh, the point I wanted you to get out of that is a couple of things. Just it, it started so small, and here is this big, colossal IBM looking at these little startups like, you know, what do they care? What, you know, what do they matter? And yet, out of, I mean, here you are, I mean, you're, you're Bill Gates, you're, you're uh, Steve Ballmer, and Paul Allen, you know, a couple of computer geek nobodies relative to anything, and, you know, Ballmer even mentions back then, we're like, we're, we're a bunch of nobodies, we're just a little time, how could we amount to anything in all of this? Well, now, like, what, they own most of everything, they own basketball teams, everything, it's, it's, it's grown and grown and grown, and you can imagine the disciples there with Jesus, and Jesus talking about, we're going to start the kingdom of God is ushering in through you. And they're like, we're a bunch of poor, uneducated peasants running from the authorities. What do you mean we're ushering in a kingdom? This is, what is this? And so he would tell these stories about the kingdom of God and how it would start. And so some of the stories were about how it starts off small and grows and grows and grows. And the same way you look back at Microsoft and you think, you know, Think about the name, Micro and Soft. Not exactly a power company name, right, is what you're going to call this. And there's also a really funny scene in the movie right after that. I don't know if it's fictional or not, but right, right after that, uh, when the money starts rolling in, they're out roller skating, and the guy playing Bill Gates runs into this beautiful girl, and she's like, hey, you know, basically, dork, get away. And it's sort of like, if only you had a chance to go back and rethink that moment, right? <laughs> I don't know. Um, so we are in a series uh, about parables, and we'll come back to sort of some of those concepts from that movie. Uh, this summer, we're going to be looking at the different parables of Jesus, and so in there, I'm going to be giving you some of the background information, how to understand and interpret uh, scriptures as we read them, but then also going through and looking at what they say and what the meanings of them are. And a parable is simply a story, and Jesus would use these, use these stories for several reasons. One of the reasons is for the obvious reasons we use stories, and that is to try to remove whatever bias you may have before you hear a truth. So we come into things with a preconceived bias, where oftentimes we'll get defensive if we think you're talking about me. Uh, and that keeps us from really listening and understanding what's being said. And so Jesus would tell a story. And before you could even figure out who you were in the story, you could at least sort of process and incorporate the truth, and then the application may come later that would help you understand where you fit into that. So it would take away the bias. Uh, also with parables, uh, there is one central truth to each of the parables Jesus would tell, but oftentimes in the parables there's other sort of ancillary or supporting truth. In other words, there's a lot of things sometimes we get out of the parables, and I've heard some people say, well, there's only one truth, you can't teach anything else other than that one truth. Not exactly. I mean, there is that one truth, but oftentimes you have to make other truth statements to support the ultimate truth you're getting to, and we see that in a lot of the parables. And then lastly, what we've been looking at with parables is that Jesus used them to both reveal and conceal truth. He would reveal truth in a, in a very deep way that you could really understand the profundity, if that's a word, of a concept, but also he would use them to conceal them from people because, and this is where it's hard for us, because in the same way that the thought of Bill Gates being a computer geek nobody is hard for us to picture right now. But back 30, 40 years ago, he was. 
in the same way, it's hard for us to sort of picture what Christianity or following Jesus was like back in the time that Jesus is saying these things. And people would go and listen to Jesus simply looking for a soundbite with which they could use to accuse him. And if you kind of go through the Bible story, you'll see that when Jesus finally does get arrested, they have nothing they can accuse him of. They don't have any hard, concrete things they can say, well, he said this, and therefore he's guilty. Like, what did they have? They had all these stories about mustard trees and bacon flour and catching fish and planting stuff in the garden. None of that holds up in a court of law. And so he would purposely say things that would conceal truth to people who were just looking for a soundbite, but he would also share things that would reveal truth to those who really wanted to listen and press deeper. And so we've been looking at that, and I wanted to go back. Last week we started looking in Matthew 13 at a a teaching session he gives where all he does is tell stories. And to the crowds, all he does story after story after story, no explanation, just all story time with Jesus. And people were like, what did all that mean? I want to go back. So in Matthew 13, uh, Luke records what's being said in Matthew 13 over in Luke 8. Mark records everything from Matthew 13 over in Mark 4. And so there's one thing I want to go back to in Mark 4 just for clarity, it's something I meant to hit last week, I didn't, but it also speaks to this issue about Jesus revealing and concealing, because there's, the way that it's translated into the English is confusing and misleading, and so I just want to point it out, because it's a very crucial thing that I've had questions about in the past, I want to make sure I hit it. Jesus would say this statement, he whoever has ears, let him hear, and we looked last week how to hear is a part of the Greek word for to obey, and then there was a way you say, hey, you listen to me. You listen to me right now, and you listen good. What are you saying? Do you want me to casually, audibly register that you're saying, no, you're making noise, or do you want me to listen with the intent of obeying? And so Jesus would say these statements, and he would say things like, he who has ears, let him hear. In other words, if you really want to know what I'm talking about, you'll press in. But if you're just here for a soundbite, you're going to listen and walk away. So right after he says that the first time, and he's going to say that again at the cheat, what we're going to look at today. After he finishes all these parables, he's going to say it again. So I want to go back to when he first says it. He says, he who has ears, let him hear. When he was then alone with the twelve, they asked him about the parables. And they told them, the secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you. But to those on the outside, everything is said in parables. As I mentioned before, because they're looking for sound bites, trying to accuse him. So as things on the outside, uh, everything is said in parables. So that they may, be, they may be ever seeing, but never perceiving. Ever hearing, but never understanding. Otherwise, they might turn and be forgiven. Now, the way it's translated, it sounds like Jesus is saying, well, I don't want to tell him the truth, because if I told him the truth, then I'd be forced to forgive him, but I don't want to have to forgive him, so I'm going to use some riddles, and I'm going to like sort of tell him stuff, but then not really tell him stuff, so that way they won't really know, because if they did, then I'd have to forgive him, but I don't really want to forgive him, because, well, you know, they're those people. Doesn't it sound like that's what he's saying? Like, I tell comparables so that they can hear but not really hear, and they can see but not really hear, not really see, because if they did, then I'd have to forgive them. It hinges on that phrase, so that. Uh, it's the Greek henna, which can be translated as so that. It also can be, and I would say here should be translated, as a result. I talk in parables, and as a result, they see, but they don't really see, and they hear, but they don't really hear. Otherwise, if they did, they'd be forgiven. See how that radically changes how you read that? But think about what the context he's saying this in. He's saying in the context of, if you have ears to hear, then hear. There's some people who have a preconceived idea that God loves certain people and he doesn't love other people. And he wants to forgive his, his, his good friends, but the other people he doesn't want to forgive. And they'll use this verse and that 
translation to support that idea that, you know, for you guys, my disciples, I want you guys to know because I want to forgive you. But those people I don't want to. Sort of like in here, people say, you always go left. Why do you always go left? Well, because those people showed up early, so they came in this door. <laughs> you all showed up late, and so those are the only seats that were left. So I love these people more than I love those people. No, that's not true any more than Jesus loves some, not the others. What's the parable he just told? He said, I'm giving the seed to everybody. I'm scattering the seed everywhere. Whether or not they believe isn't because I didn't give them the seed. I want them to hear. I want them to know. But some of the seed gets snatched up. Some of the people get distracted. I'm giving the seed to everybody. You can't give that teaching and then come right back to it and go, but I don't want them to really get the seed. See how that doesn't make any sense? What he's saying is, as a result, similar kind of thing. Um, there's another sort of parabolic type of saying that he says over in John chapter 6. And it's very clear that what he's doing in this kind of thing over in John 6. Uh, what happens in John 6 is he's just fed the 5,000. Uh, it's a well-known miracle, five loaves of bread, two fish. He turns into feeding 5,000 people. And the people follow after him in John chapter 6, wanting more food. Uh, I mentioned two weeks ago that in that day and time, they didn't have banks uh, people didn't have money under the mattress. If they had any money, they would typically go bury it so nobody could find it. Uh, you literally work today so you could buy food tonight at the market and eat tomorrow. I mean, it literally was a give us this day our daily bread society. So when Jesus feeds them for free, you can see how they're thinking. Oh, this guy will feed us for free. We don't have to work. He's our meal ticket. And so they come to him in John chapter 6 trying to manipulate him. They're like, well, you know. There's some claims out there that you might be better than Moses. Moses fed people for 40 years in the wilderness. What you got, buddy? And it says in there, he knows they're not coming because they want a relationship with him. It's, he says in, in John 6, they were just coming because they got free food. And he looks right at him, he goes, you're not here because you want to know anything about me. You're here because you ate and were full. That's the only reason why you're here. And so he says, all right, you want something to eat? You can eat my body and drink my blood. Okay, now, you, 2,000 years later, what's he talking about? Anybody? He's talking about communion, right? Now, he hadn't talked about communion yet. He hadn't explained communion. What's it sound like he's saying? Cannibalism. And they're like, I'm out, I'm out. And like, oh, oh, we wanted bread. I didn't want to eat. I mean, I saw the movie alive. I don't know. I, I hope that never happens to me. I kind of understand what happened there. I'm not really into that sort of thing. I'm not really sure what I would do if I was stuck on the side of a mountain after a plane crash. Would I eat my fellow friends? I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. Maybe I might get that desperate. I don't really want to think about that. But if that's what you're saying, Jesus, I'm out. And so the crowd leaves. And then it's funny. He turns to Peter and he goes, how about you guys? Like, you guys want to taste? And Peter's like, <sighs> all right, here's the deal, Jesus. Um, I'm not into that either. I don't really think that's what you mean. But, I mean, where else are we going to go, right? I mean, I know that you have the answers to life that nobody else has. There's something unique about you. I mean, I've seen you literally look to the weather and say, settle down. And all of a sudden, the clouds clear and everybody, I mean, the, 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 the creation listens to you. There's something unique about you, right? I don't know what this means, but I trust you. And I trust that when it all comes down, somehow that's going to make sense. But right now, I'll be honest, it's a little freaky, but I ain't going anywhere. You read John 6. That's, that's, what, that's how the whole thing plays out. What's going on there? 
those who are there just for a soundbite or for a free food or to misuse Jesus in some way, shape, or form, they hear that and they're out. But for those who genuinely want a relationship with him, say, I'll trust you long enough to figure out what this means. And sure enough, one day, he sits down with them on his last night with them and he says, this bread that we've been breaking for years at the Passover service and it's then hidden and been brought back out later, that represents my body, which is being broken for you. And this cup, which was the cup of redemption in the Passover meal that they would share together every single year to celebrate the Passover, he says, this cup, which represents redemption, is, is, represents my blood, which is being shed for you. And I can just picture him going, oh, that's what you meant that day with the whole loaves, fishes, feet, I get it now, I'm on board, right? That's what a parable did. It got rid of the people who didn't want anything to do with it, and the people who really wanted a relationship would, would lean in. I speak in parables, and as a result, those who want to hear, hear. Those who don't, they leave. See how that works out? It's a very good picture of what the parables did. So they reveal and they conceal. So he just give, he's just given the parable in Matthew 13 about the seed that's scattered out, and some falls in good places, some falls in bad places, some gets taken care of, some doesn't, some grows, some doesn't. That was all last week. And then he continues on to talk about uh, the kingdom of God. And so he says, then he told him another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. See, I always go left first. I don't know why I always go left. I always go left, and I'll come back to y'all. I love y'all. I really do. Uh, He says, the kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed seeds of wheat, um, sowed among the seeds of wheat, um, some other stuff. Where does it say? (laughs) Sowed weeds. Sorry. I'm dyslexic, and now I'm thinking about where I'm standing. Let me back up. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in this field. But while everybody was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. When the wheat sprouted and formed heads, the weeds also appeared. The owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Then where did all these weeds come from? The enemy did this, he replied. And the servants asked him, Do you want us to go pull them up? No, he answered, Because while you're pulling the weeds, you may uproot the wheat with them. Let them both grow together until the harvest. At that time, I will tell the harvesters... First collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned, then gather the wheat and bring them into my barn. He then told him another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in the field. And though it was the smallest of seeds, yet when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds can come perch in its branches. He then told him another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into 60 pounds of flour and worked it all through the dough. Jesus spoke all these things in parables, and he didn't say anything to them without using a parable. So what was spoken to the prophet, I will open my mouth in parables, and I will utter the hidden things since the creation of the world, was fulfilled. He then left the crowd, and he went into the house. And the disciples came to him and said, hey, explain to us that parable about the weeds in the field. He answered, he says, okay, the one who sowed the good seed, that's the son of man. The field are the people uh, in the world. Um, the good seed stands for the people of the kingdom. The weeds are the people of the evil one. The enemy sows them is the devil. The harvest is at the end of the age, and the harvesters are the angels. When the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out angels. Uh, They will weed out of his kingdom all who cause sin and do do evil. He'll throw them into the blazing furnace where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous one will shine like the sun in the kingdom of the Father. Uh, Whoever has ears, let them hear. He says it again. All right, so let's go through some of this. Um, First of all, he mentions in there a quotation from the psalm, Psalm 78, where it says he'll speak to them in parables. If you go back and look at Psalm 78, He's talking in that psalm, was written, uh, you had Moses leads them out of, the, out of Egypt, 
They wander in the wilderness for 40 years, kind of rebelling against God. That's why they wander for 40 years. Uh, then Joshua helps them take the land. And right after Joshua, they go through this horrible period called the time of the judges. That's the book of Judges in your Bible. And it is just up and down. Some of the craziest, nastiest, weirdest stuff that happens in the Bible happens in that chapter. That's how depraved and defunct the people were. And then it was after that period that this parable is written, or this uh, psalm is written, where it says, I'll speak to my people in parables. And the point of that, of that psalm is talking about, for generations, people have rebelled against God and not wanted to have a relationship with him. And there'll be a time, I'm looking forward to a generation that will have a right relationship with God. And sort of what will usher that in is these talkings of parables. And so that's sort of what the uh, message is there that Asaph is talking about. He's hoping it starts, with, he's hoping it happens with King David when King David comes to power. And of course, as we know, that's ultimately Jesus is in the line of King David. And so he's the ultimate fulfillment of all that was started in King David. And so this is this prophecy Matthew's pulling back out where he's like, hey, Jesus speaking in parables, there was a whole prophecy about speaking in parables and how that would usher in a new generation, hopefully to have a right relationship with Jesus. So he's just kind of bringing that out. That's what little passage is there. Next thing I want to look at is it's understandable that the people were confused by Jesus' parables because he's mixing up his metaphors constantly. So for instance, uh, in here, he talked about the wheat and the weeds, right? Now, and he says the weeds in this parable are the seeds that were planted by the enemy, right? Well, what were the weeds in the last parable he just told? He just told the parable a minute ago about there was a farmer scattered seed and some seed got eaten up some seed was in the rock. Some seed, though, got choked out by the weeds. And the weeds in that parable were the worries of this life, deceitfulness of wealth, all the distractions that come in and choke it out. So there, it was the distractions of life that choke it out, whereas here, it's people that are planted by the enemy. So he's completely changed what the weed is. So you can imagine, if you didn't hear the explanation of the two of them, you'd be trying to make sense. Okay, weeds, okay, that's, the weed choked out the seed, and now there's different weed in the soil. You can see how you could be confused, right? All right, let's go a little further. In the parable last week, birds of the air swoop down and eat up the seed, right? Birds are bad. Then he tells this parable about a mustard seed that grows up into a tree, and it's one of the benefits of having the mustard tree there is that it provides a nice, safe place for the birds to branch and nest in the branches. Well, why would you want to do that? Why would you want to provide a, a safe haven for these birds that are eating up all of your seed? That doesn't make any sense, right? Oh, well, then let's talk about mustard for a minute. Uh, mustard, he says, is the smallest of seeds. I got to pause for a minute for all of you technical science geeks who yell at the Bible. I don't know why I have to do this, but I have to do it. When it says it's the smallest of seeds, it is not saying it's the smallest seed in the entire known world. What he's talking about, of all the garden seeds that were typically used or familiar to a gardener in Israel, it was the smallest among them. If you compare it to watermelon seed or sunflower seed, you're going to find it is much smaller. He's not saying that it is the smallest seed according to how many microns wide the thing is compared to every other seed in the entire world. He's not saying that. I hate that to bring that up, but that's not what he's saying. All right, so he mentions mustard. Um, the thing about mustard is it's kind of interesting. Um, it was not legal to plant mustard in a garden, uh, in a communal garden area. In other words, if you, know, if, you're, if you have your own big, huge, you know, 100-acre farm, fine, plant some mustard seeds in there. But if you have a smaller garden, kind of, you know, in closer to the city, it was illegal to plant mustard. Why? Because mustard spread. And not everybody wanted mustard in their yard, but if you planted mustard, then everybody was going to be getting mustard. In the same way, if you have a nice, beautiful fescue grass, how do you feel when your neighbor decides to plant Bermuda? Yeah, you know, Bermuda runs. And if your neighbor's got Bermuda, whether you like it or not, 
you got a Bermuda yard too. There's just no way about it. You cannot keep my Bermuda yard. In the same way, if mustard was planted, you were going to get mustard too. So mustard was an illegal weed. Okay? So here he is telling this parable about an illegal weed, and he's using it in a positive way. And that doesn't make any sense. No more so than if I were to come up and give you a positive illustration about how Jesus is like an illegal weed that you're thinking about and laughing about, you would go, uh, I'm not quite so sure that was a good idea, Steve. That, I know it's legal sort of around, but you know, I think that's just a little too taboo. You should stay away from that because that kind of sends the wrong message, and I'm not sure I feel very comfortable with you bringing that up, right? In the same way, he's using mustard, this illegal weed that they couldn't, it wasn't legal to be planted, that was kind of like a nuisance. Like when you groaned when I said Bermuda, they would groan when they hear mustard, but he's saying the kingdom of heaven is like mustard. Ugh. That grows, and isn't it wonderful? Huh? See, these were confusing. These were confusing concepts as he would share them. Or right after that, he uses the kingdom of God is like leaven or, or, or yeast, and a little bit impacts the whole loaf. Well, if you've ever been with us for a Passover service, you know that Leaven, historically in the Jewish community, was always considered to be a symbol or a picture of sin, and that how just a little bit of sin can spoil everything. And so before the Passover service, the man of the house would clean the entire house top to bottom and get rid of all leaven. And you're thinking, whoa, all right, go dad. If you've been to our Passover services, you might know the humor in that. What would actually happen in a Jewish household is the woman of the house would clean the entire house top to bottom and get rid of all the leaven, then she would leave a little pile of crumbs on the corner, and then at the ceremony, the man of the house would stand up, he'd go over and he'd get the broom and the dustpan that the woman of the house would leave for him, and he would scoop up that little pile, and he would throw them out the door, then he would come back in and proclaim, I have rid the house and cleaned of all leaven, <laughs> and take credit for all the work. Which is pretty close to today. It doesn't matter how much cleaning she's done. Hey, don't forget, I took out the trash. I want credit for it. Give me a card. It's Father's Day, right? All right. See, I just slipped that one right in on Father's Day. All right. So what I'm getting at here, though, is yeast was always considered to be a picture of sin, and now he's using yeast as this sort of positive example. Can you see how, as he's telling these parables, it left everybody absolutely confused? This doesn't make any sense. You're mixing up weed, you know, in the last story was this, and now it's this. Historically, we've always assumed that uh, the yeast was this, but now you're saying it's this, and we don't like mustard, but yet you're using it. It was very confusing to them. And so as he's telling these parables, he who has ears, let him hear. If you're going to come in here with all your preconceived notions, you're going to walk away thinking I'm an absolute nut. In the same way that if I were to come in here and give you, if I were to do a 10-part series on comparing the church of God to the benefits of marijuana use. Are, some of you, some of you are going to invite your friends to that. <laughs> some of you are going to quit coming to this church. See, right here. They're going to quit coming. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I don't know why you're leaving. All right. So just get up and walk right out. I, sorry. Sometimes timing is perfect and I got to use it. Um, but seriously, some of you would get up and walk out. In the same way that as soon as Jesus says, eat of my body, drink of my flesh, People were getting up and walking out. The same way as he was telling this stuff, people were like, no, I ain't coming back for this anymore. Mustard, yeast, forget this. I'm out of here. All right, so what does he mean by all of this? Um, when he talks about the wheat and the weeds, uh, there was a weed that 
was back in their day. Uh, I think it still exists. Uh, it's, it's known as Darnell or Zizania. If I'm mispronouncing that by some botanist in the room, I don't care. Anyways, <laughs> it looked just like wheat when it was growing. However, once it bloomed, uh, you would see the wheat and you would realize, you know, only half my field is, is, is wheat. And the other, the, as it would grow, the, other, the weeds would grow a little bit darker. They'd be a little bit darker shade of gray and you wouldn't get the wheat stalk at the top, but they look just like it for months, and then as soon as they go to bloom, you know the difference. And this is a principle Jesus brings up a lot in his ministry. I think over in Matthew 7, he mentions this. He says, by your fruit, we will know them. We'll be known by our fruit. You can't tell in the early stages what is what. It's not until there is fruit. Now, I have to pause for a minute and tell you a funny story about this parable that Jack Nicholas shared with me years ago. So the church I grew up at was Jack Nicholas's home church. Uh, I went to Sunday school with his son, Mike, went to school with his son, Mike, played football with him. So uh, every year, Jack would give a men's breakfast at our church and would speak, and it was kind of a neat thing. So he was sharing a story about this. Now, he's got a close friend that, I don't, know, I don't remember who it was. I'm sure it was another golfer or somebody. I don't know. I can't remember the, who that was. Who They would play practical jokes on each other over the years. Maybe some of y'all have friends like that. Well, Nicholas has a house right on the water uh, down in, in West Palm Beach where I grew up. Actually, it's North Palm Beach. Um, and in his backyard, as you can imagine, he has a nice grass putting green. Uh, he's got one or two sand traps, uh, a grass bunker, and it's you know, really nice kind of fringe so he can practice in his backyard. He also has two grass, ken- uh, two grass tennis courts in his backyard as well. And so folks who are looking to prepare for Wimbledon, like the, the Williams sisters grew up down in that same area, uh, they would come over, others would come over to practice before Wimbledon because where else are you going to find a grass tennis court? It was also a write-off for him because he has a golf course company, and so he would test grass in his backyard, and that's how it was like this write-off and thing. So anyways, all that to say, a friend of his played a practical joke on him, and you can pull right up to his dock from the intercoastal waterway and get onto his property that way. So a friend of his snuck onto his property one night and released like a hundred some chickens in his backyard. (laughs) And so he woke up in his entire backyard, you know, this nice, pristine, putting green surface, the, the, all the fringe. I mean, we're talking like master's level manicured grass and these two very valuable grass tennis courts have chickens everywhere just enjoying, the, you know, having their best life, right? So, of course, he immediately knows who did it. He calls them up, ha, 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 